Today, I invite you to begin a new series with me, um, Leading an Exodus. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the first chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning at verse 1. I will read through verse 14, and if you're so able, wherever you are, I would ask that you please stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 1, at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So ends the reading of God's word. Last Sunday, I highlighted how God brought Joseph to Egypt in order to save many lives. That God accomplished good in spite of what Joseph's brothers had intended for evil. However, as we come to Exodus chapter 1, the man Joseph, who had been so familiar and revered in Egypt, was forgotten. Victor Hamilton notes a striking parallel at this point. Exodus 1 verse 6 says that Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Likewise, Judges chapter 2 verse 8 reads... Joshua, the son of Nun, died. Exodus 1, verse 6, and Judges 2, verse 10, both refer to an entire generation. Only in Exodus 1, verse 8, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Whereas in Judges 2, 10, it says a generation of God's people grew up who did not know the Lord. Hamilton thus asks us, which ignorance imperils God's people more? A new Pharaoh who does not know Joseph, or a new generation of Israelites who do not really know their covenant Lord? In my estimation, this readily applies to us today. No doubt amid our nation, the structure of our governance appears to have forgotten familiar principles of Scripture. 
inserting in place of God's truth relativism, pluralism, and secularism. I particularly like how the NIV translates verse 8. It says that Joseph meant nothing to the new king. It does not render the text as if the king did not know anything about Joseph, rather that the king just did not care about who Joseph was or about what Joseph had done. That is sadly where I think we have come as a society. It's not that it's clueless about the faith of our founding fathers. Rather, our nation as a whole just does not care about Jesus or about what Jesus has done. But before we sit around lamenting what the world's pharaohs may have forgotten, let us take seriously Hamilton's warning concerning the pattern which emerges from Exodus to Judges. A friend told me that he would rather risk worshiping and contracting COVID than not attending church. His reason for that was the fear that he might lose sight of the habit of assembling together, as the author of Hebrews puts it. It's why I mentioned in a sermon to conclude 2020 that a number of individuals who study the church wonder how many people will return to regular worship whenever we get a stronger handle on this pandemic. The essence behind their question is how easy it can become to move from that which is familiar to something that is suddenly forgotten, much like what we find among the generation of God's people in Judges. As the people of God, we must not allow ourselves to get lost in the currents of the world. Has the church forgotten its place to be set apart? Have we forgotten our purpose to reflect, to reflect light even in the days of darkness? Do we still rest in God's loving and sovereign providence, no matter our circumstances? Consider for a moment the context of Genesis and how it naturally flows into Exodus. The first five verses of Exodus definitely intend to replicate Genesis chapter 46, verses 7 to 27. Yet I find it especially compelling to take note of how God undoubtedly brought his chosen people into Egypt. Genesis 46, 1 through 3 reads, So Israel, the name God had given to Jacob, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. It is in light of that promise that we opened the book of Exodus only to find Joseph dead and the chosen people of God suffering. Can you and I not see this principle of Exodus echoing throughout the history 
of the church. Like the Hebrew nation of Exodus, we often find ourselves exposed to days of darkness and suffering, left to ask the question, why, Lord? Why did you bring me to this place if it was only to be overwhelmed with such hardship? God, you seem clearly to lead me to this job, so why am I failing? God, you seem clearly to lead me to this new community, so why has it proven so lonely? You get the gist. God, you seemed clearly to fill in the blank. So why, God? Honestly, most everyone can identify with why God questions or with what we might term experiences without explanations. But if the Israelites questioned why they were in Egypt and why they were under the heavy hand of Pharaoh, and if perhaps, just perhaps, they thought that they had taken a terribly wrong turn in their life outside the will of God, we must remember the inescapable words of Genesis 46, 1 through 3. This much is clear. God had led the Hebrew people into the land of Egypt. It was part of his providential plan. The fact that it did not prove easy does not make it less true. This much is also clear. God permitted COVID-19. It is part of his providential plan. The fact that it has not proven easy does not make it less true. We can, in fact, place everything under this big theological tag called providence. The 11th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? The answer it then provides is that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions. Maybe for many people right now, regardless of their political party affiliation, our political landscape causes them to question such providence. Here, I think Peter Inns rightly suggests the spiritual character of our country, if there even is such a thing, seems to be determined more by the character of the new Pharaoh we elect rather than by the character of the ever-present God by whose command these rulers rise and fall. All this is not to say that political involvement by Christians ought to be discouraged, nor is it to say that all earthly rulers are of equal merit. But even if God's people today, like the Israelites of Exodus chapter 1, were to suffer inhumane treatment at the hands of the government, the big picture should not be lost. And that big picture, once again, is God's providence. It is God taking what you and I might sometimes call mistakes or happenstance and stitching all things together in order to achieve his program. 
Mature Christians may certainly doubt and struggle sometimes with that program. Take time to read through the Psalms. Still, we must trust God and we must maintain our faith. John Piper says, I do not need to explain everything. That the Lord reigns and that he loves is enough for now. Piper did not write those words in some intellectual vacuum. He wrote those words reflecting upon his beloved mother's untimely death. On December 16, 1974, God did not save my mother's life. She was riding with my father on a touring bus heading toward Bethlehem in Israel. A van with lumber tied on the roof swerved out of its lane and hit the bus head on. The lumber came through the windows and killed my mother instantly. The death certificate said, lacerated medulla ambagata. When we saw her body 10 days later after the funeral home did the very best it could, my sister fainted. We left my father to weep alone over the coffin for a long time. Then I went in and shut it for the last time. We used pictures at the visitation. What was my comfort in those days? There were many. She suffered little. I had her for 28 years as the best mother imaginable. She had known my wife and one of my four children. She was now in heaven with Jesus. Her life was rich with good deeds and its good effects are lasting long after she is gone. And underneath all these comforts, supporting all my unanswered questions and calming my heart, there is the confidence that God is in control and that God is good. I take no comfort from the prospect that God cannot control the flight of a four by four. For me, there is no consolation in haphazardness. Earlier, we sang William Cowper's classic hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. We will not always know the why, but we can always know the who. And we rest in that. We rest in the words of Paul from Romans 8:28 that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, we see God working out his own schemes in his own way and according to his own time and wisdom. Let this grant us the assurance that even when the days may feel dark, it is all moving to something new. R.C. Sproul writes, one of the oldest sayings of the ancient church summarizes the essence of the relationship between God and his people. Deus pro nobis. It means 
God for us. That is what the doctrine of providence is all about. It's about God being for his people. So Paul continues in Romans 8.31 asking, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Is it going to be distress, peril, the sword, persecution, suffering, sickness, human hostility? Not a chance. The apostle's point is that no matter what we have to endure in this world as Christians, nothing has the power to sever the relationship we have to a loving and sovereign providence. <laughs> it's likely not wise to give away the ending in the opening, but here I go doing it anyway. Exodus begins with God's people coming under the heavy hand of slavery and under the heavy hand of a Pharaoh who sought to destroy the line by which the Messiah would come. You can keep reading at verse 15 of his attempts to kill all the baby boys born among the Hebrew people. An account similar that we find in Matthew chapter 2 with King Herod. But while the nation from which the Messiah would come finds itself under the experience of bondage in chapter 1, the nation will find itself in chapter 40 experiencing the presence of an almighty God who chooses to tabernacle with them. Exodus 1.11 says the Israelites were forced to build store cities for Pharaoh. The Hebrew word for store cities is eerily similar to the term for tabernacle used throughout Exodus chapters 25 to 40. The point is that while Exodus begins with God's people building imposed cities for a ruthless Pharaoh, it concludes with them building a glory-filled tabernacle where God will dwell with them. Knowing the full counsel of God's word always serves us well as his people. Should the Israelites not have known the Lord's statement to the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, and 14? For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Should we, the church, not also know in line with 1 Peter 2.11 that we are sojourners just passing through? And that according to 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ after we have suffered a little while will himself restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Exodus thus echoes throughout the biblical account. In this fallen world, God's people will often walk through experiences without explanations. 
In Acts 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas say, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Take heart. As confusing as various events and experiences may seem to our naked eye, the Lord is continuing to work out his redemptive purposes. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will lead an exodus where his people will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the deliverance that God's redemption and exodus preludes. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will lead an exodus where we will dwell in the presence of God forever. That is the tabernacling that the end of Exodus preludes. In Exodus 1, verses 13 and 14, Moses makes sure that readers do not miss what stands out as Israel's desperate need for an exodus. A desperate need for God's coming salvation. Twice, he says, worked them ruthlessly. And twice, he says, harsh labor which made the lives of God's people bitter. This sets the stage for who leads the needed exodus and for the one who will become involved in Israel's situation. God enters into difficult, suffering situations to set things right. God is a God who is concerned to move people from slavery to freedom. Church, today we desperately need God's coming salvation. We need the leading of an exodus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so. Pray with me. Christ, that you care about the plight of, of sinners. Those of us who were in heavy bondage to sin, and you lead us in an exodus to freedom through your blood at the cross of Calvary. And even in uncertain times, as we await your return, in faith we know you're coming back. You're coming again. You will set all things right. Help us, God, to trust your providence, to rest in your sovereignty, to be comforted by your love. Holy Spirit, equip your church that we would not forget that we would be a people who constantly remembers your goodness, God, your deliverance, Lord, our freedom, Holy Spirit, and living in that freedom, confident of your goodness and your providence and your sovereignty, that we would be a light in days of darkness, Bring, I pray, 
men, women, boys, and girls to faith throughout your world. We hide ourselves in you, God our Father. Amen.